The first Bible reading can be found in your pew Bibles on page 254. It's 1 Kings um, chapter 18, starting at verse 16 till the end of the chapter. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, um, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed um, the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah um, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if um, Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, you shall, um, Your name shall be Israel. With a stone he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two shades of, of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so the people will know that you, O, o Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts um, back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell um, and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let, don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And, the, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is a sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told the servant, and he went and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew dark. Um, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose. A heavy rain came, came on, and Ahab um, rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucked, tucked his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The second reading is from Acts 4, verse 10 to 12, and it's on page 773 in your Bibles. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is. The stone you build is rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Just as Mark comes up, I'll, uh, I'll quickly pray for us. Dear Father, I pray that it may be known on earth and in heaven that you are Lord of all creation. Father, I thank you that you make your, your uh, greatness known. And Father, I pray you would make it known um, through your word and in our hearts and in our minds. Father, I pray that you would speak through Mark today and that your word would become living and work uh, in our hearts and souls. Amen. Amen. We have prayed. It would be good for you to flick back to that uh, long reading from 1 Kings, isn't it? The, the problem when you just have a three-verse reading, you've gone to all the effort of finding it and then it's over. Uh, at least that one Kings one was satisfying. If uh, you're just amongst us, we're working our way through the books of Kings. Uh, it's great preparation for Christmas where we remember the King of Kings coming. And so as we look back uh, at the Kings that came before and God's kingdom, uh, we might appreciate all the more his coming. So please flick back to 1 Kings 18 and have that open in front of you. There is but one true and living God. Now, that line might be familiar to you. Uh, if you're used to Anglican churches, it's the opening line of the 39 Articles, the foundational document of our church. There is but one living and true God. And that's fine for us to, to say it boldly here. You know, it's fine for us when we, we started in our time of praise to say the Nicene Creed with, with confidence, all within the safety of these walls. But how do those words fit outside? How, how do they fit on the streets? How do, 
in your, in your, in your life at the office or, or down at the local club or at the mother's group. As Australia is a, a multi-faith society, uh, our local school, North Sydney Dem, just up the road, offers a variety of scriptures uh, and as well the choice of not just which God you want to get scripture from but you can just opt out entirely. Uh, at school, at least in the past, the Baha'i scripture group have uh, tried putting together an ecumenical service to fit in all the various gods on the one sheet. Uh, there are many non-Hindus in our community who, who stick religiously to their yoga program. Uh, and I was just told this week of an offer given to uh, a grieving widow by her friend to go meditate at the Buddhist temple. Now, Australia is a, a multi-faith society. Uh, and thankfully, it's a peaceful multi-faith society. And I don't want to make our community any less safe or welcoming for those of different beliefs. But I do want us this morning to ask, what might it mean practically that there is one living and true God? Now, if it's true, doesn't our society deserve more than polite error? If it's true, doesn't the one living and true God deserve more respect in the society that he sustains? Because our passage from Kings this morning is quite clear. Uh, God makes the truth of the statement very clear. Um, one simple big point, there is but one living and true God. There is but one living and true God. Uh, but that truth is under threat, at least in the context of our Kings reading. It's under serious threat. Uh, like us, Israel was a multi-faith society. Uh, so to fill you in a little bit of the background before we get to chapter 18 to make sense of it, that the once glorious kingdom of Israel under Solomon had, had split in two after his death. Um, the southern kingdom that starts getting called Judah, uh, they had stability. We'll, we'll see some pictures of some of their kings flash up in a moment. Uh, they had the temple, they had a secure royal family. Uh, Rehoboam's 17 years, we'll get him up in a moment, beautiful. Uh, Rehoboam had 17 years followed by his son Abijam, uh, then Asa after Abijam had three years, Asa had 41 years. In the words of 1 Kings 15, he, verse 11, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Point is, Judah had stability in the Lord. You contrast that to what was happening in the south, if we flick on another slide, you don't have... By the way, they're not photographs, uh, just reassuring you of that. Uh, but, but the point is, you can see just how unstable it is. Uh, king after king, um, the writer... Really, the writer of Kings focuses, ignores the north, and sorry, ignores the south, and focuses entirely on the north for, for the next, well, at least halfway into two kings. Um, and, and in the north, after Jeroboam died, there was this succession of, of political assassinations and dynasty changes. You can read through them later on. Uh, and it finally gets to Ahab, who arrives on the throne, 16 verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And what was so bad about Ahab's rule? Well, 16 verse 31, if you just have a look at there, he saw that it was trivial to follow the sins of Jeroboam. That is, what Jeroboam had done, his great sin, was he introduced golden calves, a false way of worshipping the true God. But Ahab says, no, no, that's just trivial stuff. Let's get different gods in. And through his bar-worshipping wife, Jezebel, false gods are, are introduced... And they're given royal sanction. Baal was a local fertility god. Uh, there was a history of worshipping Baal that preceded worshipping the, the Lord. Uh, and Israel was a multi-faith society with sanction from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, promotion from them, uh, and in fact, oppression of those who wanted to serve the Lord. 
In 18 verse 4, a whole bunch of prophets had to go underground. Now, the big question that hangs over Ahab's reign is just who is God in Israel? It's a question we might just as easily ask of our city. Just who is God in Sydney? It's with that backdrop of of doubt, uh, of threat, that God gives a decisive answer. The Lord demonstrates clearly that there is but one true and living God in Israel. Uh, He does it. He takes Baal on head to head. Uh, First in chapter 17, we didn't read it, but uh, in chapter 17, um, he shows that fertility is not Baal's domain, it's his domain. So in 17.1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That is, through the mouthpiece of Elijah, God shows his power by withdrawing blessing for Israel. Now, the next three years are drought for the nation that that started being devoted to Baal worship. And just so that the nation might know he really is control, uh, he sustains his mouthpiece. He keeps Elijah going. When the nation's in doubt, uh, Elijah is eating luxuriously. So in 17.6, there are ravens bringing him uh, meat and bread day and night. Uh, for a society that meat was kind of rare anyway, you wouldn't be having it all the time. To have it twice a day, the point is God can sustain his people. You know, he, he goes on and uh, when the brook dries up uh, in 17.8, the, the, the Lord directs him down to a, a particular widow. What really matters about her, this, this destitute woman with her son, is that they're foreigners. God is making a point. You know, I can bless whom I want to bless. Now, Israel is meant to see it and be jealous. If the giving of taking of food wasn't enough, though, uh, there is evidence in the fact that he really can give life. The widow's son dies. Uh, In 1721, Elijah pleads for the boy, and 1722, the Lord hears Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Do you get it? The Lord is the one who controls all. The the Lord is the one who, who can bring life from death. Israel are meant to see that there is but one true and living God the one who controls physical creation, the one who gives blessing and can withhold it, the one who can give, take, give again, even through death. But then they might know this with certainty, we get to chapter 18, because it might have escaped their notice what was going on in the side uh, with Elijah and this widow. And so he brings it to centre stage with a very clear question for the nation. 18 verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver? Um, quite literally, it says, how, will you, how long will you limp between two? How long will you waver between two options? And you just picture them hobbling back before, between their gods, trying this one, trying that one. No, no. If the Lord is God, he says, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And what do the people say? It's a resounding nothing. There's a certain shame. Yeah, but now is the time. They need to make a call. But what will they make the call on? Well, some evidence. And so a contest is set up. And if you listen carefully as Cindy read it, uh, you would have noticed how uh, Elijah at every point is giving away the advantage. So in verse 19, he calls for it to happen all at Mount Carmel. Uh, I'm not expecting when you hear Mount Carmel for that to ring any bells for you, but uh, Assyrian documents of the time record that Mount Carmel was a mountain holy to Baal. You get it? The, the Lord is giving away his home ground advantage. 
you know, to, to people who believed in regional spirits, um, he's kind of going, yeah, I'll go to the heartland of Baal, that's fine by me. We'll do it there on his home territory. Uh, the other advantage he gives away is purely numbers, isn't it? Uh, 400 plus 450 prophets of Baal and Asherah, 950 verse 1. Now, in verse 24, everyone agrees, yep, this, this sign of fire, that'll be satisfactory evidence. And so the Baal prophets, they, they go into this frenzy and it's all for nothing. So, in, you know, they're, they're cutting themselves, they're slashing themselves, they're crying out, they're dancing. Verse 27, Elijah starts mocking them. Surely you're God's a God, isn't he? Now, if you look at his taunts, they're um, intentional to bring out the humanity of the Baal they worship, you know? Maybe, maybe your Baal, maybe he's um, distracted, maybe he's deep in thought and he can't really concentrate on two things at once. He's a bloke, he's, you know, he's, that's not, he can't do that. Or maybe he's gone on holidays and he's not around at the moment or maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's just dozed off because he's a little bit worn out or, or quite crassly he puts it, maybe he's in the bathroom. All very human frailties that prevent us from doing things. Surely he's a God, isn't he? No. Because my God, says Elijah, my God's not like that. And their efforts fail. And in verse 29, we read how Baal is shown to not be a god. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening. They've done it all day. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. He's not there. In contrast, the Lord answers a really simple request. Yeah, we, we got the idea, I mean, if you've been camping, you know that it's hard enough to get sticks to burn, even when they're not wet, let alone if you, you've arrived late and you've got the wet sticks, they never start. He gets it, this altar to the point of overflowing and flooding, uh, and then without fanfare, um, Elijah humbly and clearly prays. It's not about him doing histrionics to try and get attention from God. No, no, verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. These people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. In that very simple and humble request, this great fire comes down and consumes it all, like everything, the stones and the wood, it's all burned up, the water evaporates, this consuming fire from heaven is, yes, a direct answer to prayer, but it's also got a, a symbolic backdrop, a, a history to it. In, in David's time, uh, 1 Chronicles 16, you can read about a sacrifice of consuming fire. Solomon, same, when he dedicated the temple, 2 Chronicles 7. Uh, the, the, it's a, I don't expect you to look them up now. Uh, it, it's, the backdrop of that sign is a sign both that God is real, but also that he accepts the offering. The Lord at this point is saying to Israel, yes, I am the one true and only God, but also he's saying to stubborn, faithless, limping back and forward Israel, I will accept you if you turn back to me. You know, the one true God underscores his grace and black clouds start to form in the distance and rain starts falling on this parched land. Now let's be clear, there is but one true and living God. It was demonstrated before the eyes of Multi-faith Israel on Mount Carmel and it is just as clear a claim that goes in multi-faith Sydney. And Jesus caused a great stir when he claimed to be God. In John 8, when 
Uh, he claimed that he preceded Abraham and that he was the great I am himself. People tried to pick up stones and stone him for blasphemy. But perhaps more offensive in modern Sydney ears is words Jesus spoke in John 14. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or what Roger read to us from Acts 4, there is no name under heaven given by men by which people might be saved except the name of Jesus. See, if we, if we are to take God at his word, we must acknowledge there is no other God. Allah is not God. The millions of Hindu gods are not gods. Only the God of Elijah, the God of Jesus is God and he cannot be accessed in any ways except the way he sets out the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I realise for some of, this, some of us here that, that might be hard to hear. You know, the lovely folk who run the Thai restaurant you enjoy going to with their little shrines are actually living a lie. But for others who's here, the hard edge is that it denounces the, the unofficial gods in your heart that your, your heart is inclined to produce like a little factory. You know, the, the money, the careers, the family that we give, the, the love and the devotion that only a God deserve, they are not God. Jesus particularly highlighted the way money took the place of God for so many. Uh, it was 2,000 years ago that he spoke it, but it seems so modern, doesn't it? He, he said clearly you can't serve both God and money. And yet people try it all the time. Uh, he frequently spoke against the dangers that loving money posed to people who wanted to love God and love their neighbour. Uh, the New Testament explicitly calls greed idolatry. So I know for many of us here, our danger is not that, you know, we're, we're hanging around in doubt and we've just been reading the Quran and we're just on the edge of becoming faithful Muslims. I don't think that's a problem for most of us. But our hearts are given to syncretism, of, of mixing religions together. Yeah, and that idolatry of greed is so powerful in our culture. You know, with our, our cathedral-like Westfields and, and the constant ads that call us to worship. You know, and maybe that's what's calling your hearts. Uh, William Grimshaw was a an 18th century English minister. Um, in his parish, there was a, a, a particular couple who, um, let's say, gave themselves a glowing self-appraisal of their holiness. They were happy to let him know just how pious and godly they were. Um, at the same time, he'd heard some rumours about them being pretty miserly. And so he disguised himself as a beggar and he went knocking on their door uh, just to see what kind of reaction he'd get. And, and despite his pleas and begging you know, for help and assistance, and the man refused... And so Grimshaw then kind of whipped off the disguise and, you know, he gave them a, a mini-sermon sermon there on, on covetousness and uh, on callousness and, and on greed. Uh, now, you, you don't have to sit at home later today with your bucket of money beside the door waiting for me to come around in disguise. Uh, I'm not going to do that. But, uh, but Grimshaw understood perfectly the need to have those false and unofficial gods of our hearts exposed. Yeah, and perhaps God is doing something like that to you today. Now, as he reveals himself as the one true and only God, that he turns your heart back towards him. There is but one living and true God. Two implications I want us to grasp from that. First, decide clearly for him on the evidence. See, Elijah challenged the people in 1821, make a clear choice. 
Don't waver. Don't, don't limp between one and the other. And No, no, no. Make up who, your mind who you're going to serve. And the contest is held so that in 1837, 18 verse 37, people could decide on the evidence. Now, these chapters are an invitation for all of us to do the same. The assumption the underlying it is that you know, the evidence of God actually leads to choice and change. That, that, if you want to put it fancily, theology leads to discipleship. That the more you learn and know about God and check out the evidence and the claims, it's not just an idea you play with for general knowledge, it actually changes your actions. Yeah, weigh the evidence. Make a choice one way or the other who you will serve. Now, my parents invited some friends uh, of theirs, some friends of you know, 40, 50 years of friendship, uh, invited them to a recent evangelistic talk. Uh, after the talk, um, uh, the wife was, was interested in reading more, finding out more. Uh, the husband was a little bit clearer with my dad and just said uh, the preacher was another snake oil, snake oil salesman. Uh, but my dad went further uh, and he admitted that actually what the preacher said is what he believed. And for him it all hung on the evidence of the resurrection. And that if that stacked up, you just couldn't avoid the truth of God. You couldn't avoid the compulsion. You've got to serve him. Now, if the true and living God makes no difference to your day, is it you haven't put the effort in to actually weigh the evidence? And just as Jesus invited the, the, his friend and doubter, Thomas, to inspect his wounds post-resurrection, the, the true and living God invites people to come, examine the evidence, check him out. You know, if you've not put the effort into actually reading the Bible and Christ's claim, do it. You know, if you do have questions about the evidence that go beyond, read the extra biblical literature. I can supply you with plenty. But if you've been reminded perhaps this morning that your heart is a little factory of idols, and if you've been reminded that you've been limping between kind of faithful service of Christ and something else, I want to say the solution is the same. Go back to the evidence. Go back that wavering belief with that godless action and spend more time looking at the truth of God, the one who made you and saved you. Decide clearly for him. Don't limp around. But secondly, if you've grasped that there's one true and living God, care for his reputation in the world. So in the aftermath of chapter 18, Elijah runs off and flees. Um, in chapter 19, please read it later, he goes away broken. Because in 19 verse 2, he sees that Jezebel is unchanged. You know, that is, some see the evidence and they just won't believe. Uh, and so the Lord leads the despondent and Elijah back to Mount Sinai. It was a, a mountain where God had spoken before, a mountain where he'd spoken to Moses, a mountain where God had spoken and made promises. And there, God reveals himself again to Elijah. Not in the wind, not in the quake, not in the fire, but in his word. The Lord reminds Elijah the power is in his word. And that he is faithful to his word. And twice, um, in 19 verse 10 and 19 verse 14, Elijah tells God just how zealous he's been, how passionate he has been for God's name, and how it's that concern for God's reputation is what's breaking him now. What's he going to do? And in the close of that section, from 1915 on, God approves of that kind of zeal he's got. And God promises, yeah, I will keep my powerful word, even if it means judging. And, and, and and he points to the faithful remnant of believers he has preserved, that his word is held on to. You know, so Elijah, keep being passionate. Keep proclaiming my name to multi-faith Israel. 
You know, with all the evidence in the world, some people won't believe. Some people will still love darkness. But God is faithful. And it is right for us to be zealous for his name. That is, it's right for us to care for his reputation. Someone once spoke of zeal this way. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. A desire that no man feels by nature, but the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he's converted. He sees only one thing, cares for one thing, lives for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Forget it's the the careful reputation that comes when you realise there is no other God. In the past fortnight, I've had the great encouragement of some emails from a woman uh, who has that zeal in her. From she's part of our broader church. She's been alongside the bedside of her dying aunt, uh, and every couple of days, she's been emailing uh, some prayer requests and and sharing what's been happening. How she's been reading the scriptures with this unbelieving aunt until uh, this message came through the other day. Praise our Lord, my aunt has been saved. She was keen for me to read from the Bible today, praise God. She was keen for me to pray for her in person when she repented and accepted the good news of Jesus. I was with her on and off for about two hours. Please pray that she may experience the peace with God that transcends all understanding and for better management of pain and for some healing. To get it, here's a woman who who was zealous for God in a multi-faith society. She, She reached out with the truth, a care and concern for both God's name and others that meant she spoke. Our city deserves more than living in error. And our God deserves more respect in this city than that he sustains for us. For there is but one true and living God. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we... Thank you that you are the one true living God. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us that we might know you. We thank you for the evidence that abounds of you and your actions and your character and we pray that we might look carefully upon the evidence and decide clearly this day for you. That we might serve you and not limp back and forth. And Father, knowing that you alone are God in this world, that you give blessing and take it away, We pray that we would be willing to speak and care for your reputation in this city and this world for your sake and for the sake of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.